0: One of the things that I love about being a pastor in a local church instead of being an itinerant preacher is that I get to come back week after week and uh, clarify and correct and sometimes apologize and so... Uh, I was helped tremendously by two questions that were asked about last week's message. And I want to sum up last week's message, tell you what the questions were, and then respond to them, and then preach today's message, so that's where we're going. Last week, the point was simple, and the point was, come on Bethlehem, let's be about laying up for ourselves treasures in heaven and not laying up for ourselves treasures on earth. That was the main point. Let's do that. And then I argued that it means give away your money rather than accumulating more and more and more for yourself. Laying up treasures in heaven is done by giving and giving and giving. Becoming an open-hearted, free-handed, radically generous person is the way that you lay up treasures in heaven. And my argument was based on two texts. One. Luke 12:33. sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide yourselves with money bags that don't grow old and with a treasure in heaven that does not fail. So you see the connection between selling and giving and having a treasure in heaven. And Luke 14, 13, when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed because they can't repay you. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Clearly, Give, 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 and you'll get repaid, and I think we could add 10,000-fold, at the resurrection of the just. Those were my two supporting texts for arguing that the way you lay up treasures in heaven is by giving more money away. And as part of that message, I appealed to a wartime lifestyle and a wartime mindset And said, come on now, let's be exile-like people. Let's simplify, let's pare down, let's be like people in wartime. They handled copper differently, they handled sugar differently, they handled rubber differently. Everything was different and more radical and more stripped down and all for the cause of the war during wartime. Let's have a wartime mindset because we're in war a war between righteousness and unrighteousness, and belief and unbelief, and the devil and God. This is a time when the stakes are way higher than anything in Iraq, way higher, because eternity hangs in the balance in this war, not just nations, but individual lives, forever and ever and ever, either in heaven or in hell. And therefore, I said, come on, let's put a governor on our lifestyles for the sake of the war effort, Which is a war of peace, not swords, no bombs, no tanks, nobody doing suicide bombings in the name of Jesus, but rather laying our lives down that others might come to him. That's the kind of war I'm talking about. It's a war on our sin for the sake of others being saved. Let's put a governor on our lifestyle because you know and I know that expenses always rise to fill the income. So that you'll wind up someday, if you don't put a governor on your lifestyle, you'll wind up someday writing a book called Getting By on $100,000 a year. And you'll mean it. And that will be the tragedy. God prospers me not to raise my standard of living, but to raise my standard of giving. That is absolutely true. And I wonder if you believe it. If prosperity comes into your life, its aim is to increase the standard of your giving, not the standard of your living. That's why I'm calling for a governor. If you don't put a self-conscious governor... I'm I'm thinking now of people in their 20s, teenagers, 30s, just beginning in your careers, making it pretty good on $30,000... And you're going to make 80 someday if you're good, if you're smart, and if you're a person of integrity. Is the message in that prosperity bigger house, bigger car, more houses, lake home, motorcycle, maybe? Is that the message? Is that the point of God's grace on your prosperity? Or is it settle in at 40 and give 40 away? Is that the point? That was last week's message. Calling for a a hazardous, risk-taking, God-dependent, super happy life. Because Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And every one of you who have a little taste of generosity in your life know that that's the case when you go to bed at night to have done well by someone when they don't deserve it makes you sleep like a baby and have protected your rights and not get taken in by that guy on the street does not help you sleep well at all. And when you stand before the judge, mark this, I have changed my mind in this area. When you stand before the judge... And this rascal, liar, unbeliever, deceiver on the street stands before the judge beside you. Jesus looks at him and no longer can he deceive anybody. And calls him to account for a lifetime of lying, deceiving and scams. He will be shamed and sentenced to hell. And then the Lord will look to you and believe me, the last thing you will want to say at that moment is, He never took me in. I never got taken in by that rascal. Didn't trick me one time. I sent him away every time he came to my door. That's not the way Jesus taught us. You with tears in your eyes as you watch that man get sent away will say, I did everything I could to show your lavish grace to him in his undeserving way. I know he misused everything I gave him. I know he did. And I just kept giving And the Lord will say, I watched it all. I wrote it in a book. That's exactly the way I taught you. We strove with him, and he threw it all away. That's what you'd rather say. So that was last week's message. Here are the questions that were raised. These are good questions. I'm going to get emotional about them. Do not hear in my emotion that I'm upset. In fact, I'll say... Now, instead of saying in a minute what I was going to say in a minute, I am so thankful to serve a church that is thoughtful. Biblically critical. Critical in the good sense. Assessing things. First question that was asked was, since both of the texts that you used to explain the meaning of laying up treasures focus on giving to the poor, wasn't it lopsided of you to end the message with an application to giving to the building fund? That's question number one. Question number two. When you stress the imagery of wartime living, do you leave any room for aspects of life that don't fit very well into wartime thinking? like the arts or leisure? Aren't there some images of the Christian life that are more restful than war? Second question. Those are good questions. Really good questions. Which is why I've built my message around them. Because they're helpful. Don't get upset with people who who say but to you. Just... Relax. You don't need to defend yourself. (laughs) Although it's going to sound like I'm doing that, probably. (laughs) I'm really not. Really not. Believe me. me. Let me respond in reverse order. Yes, absolutely there are other images of the Christian life that are more restful. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. Does not sound like blood flowing and bombs dropping. Though you may experience that very precious, sweet restfulness while the bombs are dropping and the blood is flowing. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm meek and lowly in heart. And you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And one that I'm increasingly, year by year, loving more and more at age 57. Even to your old age, I am he, and to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear, I will carry, and will save. The answer is yes, there are other images besides warfare that are sweet beyond words and precious beyond words. And in answer to the second part of that question, Yes, there is a proper time and a proper place for Christians to benefit from and evaluate and transform the whole range of culture, including the arts. In fact, I would say that in this modern Western world, you can't escape the broader Culture, and if you are not consciously appropriating with measure and assessment and evaluating biblically and transforming spiritually, you're going to be so consumed by the culture, you will not even know whether you're more American than Christian. And so I say yes to the first question. By all means, use all the images of Scripture, not just war, to shape your life. And then, when you have become a restful, radical, God-enthralled, Christ-treasuring, giving-oriented, sacrificial, lay down your life, easy-yoke-bearing Christian, shape your culture with all the images in the Bible. Question number one. Yes. My application last Sunday was lopsided. The message was about open-handed, free-hearted, sacrificial, joyful giving. The text focused on giving to the poor and I focused on giving to education for exaltation. I said, if you Americans must choose between giving to the poor and giving to a building fund, give to the poor by all means. It's a no-brainer. And then I added, hardly any American needs to make that choice. Any more than you choose between giving to the poor and paying for your mortgage or your rent without batting an eye. We don't have to make that choice in this lavishly wealthy land of ours. If you meditate on the words of Jesus, if you lay yourself open to Him and say, make me all that you're calling for us to be, He will show you how much of your money should go here and there and everywhere, but I did not stress which is what I want to stress right now to rectify that failure last Sunday. I did not stress how much Jesus cares about the ministry of this church to the poor. In the city, here, and among the nations. Most of the unreached peoples of the world are poor and therefore gospel ministry and Ministry to the poor go together, inevitably, if we have any heart at all. So, I underline it. These texts show, what I did not stress last week, how far we have to go as a church and individuals, wherever you live, in carrying the burden for a world which, even in America, have very poor hungry, homeless, deranged, and fractured people, all of whom cry for grace, and nations where 800 million people are on the brink of absolute starvation. So if we're not engaged in touching that In in exercising our entrepreneurial competencies to create structures to address that, we're not faithful. We're not faithful. Now, the part that's going to sound like self-defense, I'll just tell you right up front, is this. My prayer with regard to the building fund, that is, that, that building that's being built right out there could cost us $8 million if we do the whole thing all at once. Um, my prayer is that many of you who have not pledged will feel motivated. I hope that you will be motivated to give some of your money to that building precisely because you meditate on texts concerning the poor. Now, how can I say such a thing? That, how does that work? And here are the two two things I want you to meditate. I simply commend them to you for your critical consideration as to whether my assessment and confidence can be shared in your own mind and heart. The first is this. These texts not only address what kind of ministry should be given to or what kind of people should be given to, but what kind of heart should be given from. These texts are very much about The kind of heart from which generosity flows, as well as the source to which generosity flows. And the kind of heart it's talking about is liberated hearts, free hearts, no anxiety hearts. And therefore, I say this, it is vastly more important for you to give out of that kind of heart somewhere, especially to the poor, than that you give anything to Bethlehem. Your heart condition is way more important than whether we get any of your money. Nobody should give to this church except out of the right heart of leaning on Jesus and free from anxiety and harm. Then you might divvy up your income. In fact, my prayer is that you will, as part of this church, Develop a habit of giving well beyond your tithe. Because I cannot fathom endorsing a pattern of giving among blood-bought Christians that goes behind the saints who never knew the Savior. I cannot fathom standing in this pulpit and comforting you as a church, giving less than 10% of your income, I don't care where! Just to the cause of Christ, I can't imagine blessing you and comforting you and encouraging you and saying that's a good thing when you've backed up behind the pattern of giving in the Old Testament where the saints did it and then went beyond it with free will offerings and they never knew the blood of the Savior. And we've looked upon him. We've looked upon him and he gave everything for us. And he called us to an absolute abandon of obedience to his life. So don't ever expect to hear me say, it's okay to make tithing the maximum. And I hope you get to it someday. I'll never tell you that. I will always say, start there, Christian, and see where he takes you. That was number one. I want you to think about those texts when you read them. These texts are both about the poor and about a heart that's free from anxiety and takes risks for Jesus. Here's the second way I want you to think about that, that building and whether any of your income might go there. I pray, it is my deep conviction, my confidence, it sustains me in my role as a minister here, that all of the dreaming about urban ministries that will happen on the fourth floor of that building, all of the global strategizing, all of the education on the third and second and basement level to teenagers and children with a radical God-centered curriculum pleading with them to grow up to be missions-minded world Christians in whatever sphere of cultural life they're engaged. If You believe what I believe, that there's a correlation between that building housing those 60 employees slash ministers doing all of those things as a kind of nerve center from which we plant satellite campuses and plant other churches. If all of that looks like there's a correlation between that and the poor, then give. And if you don't see it, don't. Because I have to ask, how do squirrely six-year-olds turn into John Donettes? I have to ask that. I've been here 23 years. I'll lay my life down to bring little kids like this to men like that and women like that. Where do they come from? I'll tell you exactly where they come from. They come, number one, from the grace of God, sovereignly at work in their lives. That's where they come from. Number two, they come from families. Church doesn't take the place of a family. The church partners with families. Randy, Muriel, Amy. That's where they come from. Grandparents. Thirdly, they come from a web of relationships like you people. And friends and schools. And fourthly, I don't claim too much, they come from churches. Where in Sunday school for 26 years or so, they hear, God is worthy. Christ is worthy. They sing, Jesus saved. Jesus saves. He's more valuable than money. He's more valuable than fame. He's more valuable than a good figure or a good physique. Jesus matters more than anything. You hear that about 2,000 Sundays. It's going to have an effect on your life. And you just might become. And here you parents might want to get up and leave right now because you don't want your kids to become this. They just might become martyrs. They might become people willing to lay down their lives in the city, this city, or in those cities. So now, here's my point. If you don't see a correlation between going to an unreached people group, very poor, or creating a BUI, Bethlehem Urban Initiatives, for this city or a masterworks down the block for this city. If you don't see a correlation between little kids and teenagers growing up in this city and becoming radical, lay down your life, loving the poor kind of people, don't give to this building. For God's sake, why would you give? To impress somebody? To have a nice little air-conditioned place for you to have a Sunday school class? I can only survive in the ministry. I'm so well-clothed. I have a house, you pay me well. I have a car. One of my kids is in college. If I didn't believe that there was a ripple effect of my life for the nations and the poor, I'd give up. I quit. And what are we about? Just making each other feel better on Sunday? No way. I preach, I lead. I'll get in a van with the staff tonight and go away for about 48 hours for one great thing. To spread a passion for the supremacy of God in all things. In poverty, in riches, for the joy of all peoples, the poor and the rich. That they might be alleviated of suffering, temporal and eternal, especially eternal. I will never apologize for telling the rich. You're lost without Jesus. And he'll show you how to use your money as well as save your soul, and I guarantee you, you don't need 90% of what you got. I'll say that to the rich and make them the happiest people on the earth. Well, that's the introduction to the message. Let's do the message really fast. The message is, don't be anxious, because Jesus doesn't want you to be. Look at verse 25. Do not be anxious about your life. We're at Matthew 6, 25. Do not be anxious about your life, what you shall eat or what you should drink, or, or about your body, what you should wear. Look at verse 31. Don't be anxious saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? Look at verse 34. Jesus says, don't be anxious about tomorrow. So three times in this paragraph, he says, don't be anxious. Don't be anxious, Bethlehem. Don't be anxious. And then he gives eight reasons not to be anxious. Here they are. We're going to fly. Number one. Well, let me, let, me, let me preface that by saying, you know why he gives eight, eight reasons? <laughs> this, this needs to be said because you need to know that Jesus understands you. He's giving you eight reasons not to be anxious because he knows you're going to be dealing with irrational anxiety attacks before the month is out, probably. You're going to wake up and out of nowhere, you don't know what's wrong with you. And you're anxious. You can't even put your finger on it. And he knows that. He knows you well. He knows, in addition, that he has sent you out like sheep in the midst of wolves. He knows that there are wars and rumors of wars. He said that two thousand. Years ago, and he knows, John 16, verse 2, that the time will come when those who kill you believe they are serving God. He knows this, and therefore he says, all right now, i got a people who, of all people, have a right to be anxious, except for me. And therefore, I want to show them eight reasons. And this is the tip of the iceberg of grace. This is not the whole thing. Reason number one, verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you shall eat or what you shall drink or what you shall uh, put on. Is not the life, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Do you hear the, the argument there? Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? does that mean? How's that an argument? I think it's an argument like this. The body is more than clothing because the body I'm talking about will survive if you have no clothing and freeze to death. And the life I'm talking about will survive if you have no food and starve to death. That's what I mean when I say it's more. Life is more than food. Life is more than the life that can be sustained by food. The body is more than the body that has to be clothed and kept from shame and kept from starving by clothing. Because there's a resurrection body and there's an everlasting soul. And that's the life that's the bottom line protection against anxiety. I mean, isn't it amazing if we could be gripped by this as a people? that. The last enemy is defeated. All they can do is kill you, and if they do, it's dispatch you to paradise, to live as Christ, and to die as gain. Why should we be anxious about anything short of it? That's his argument here. Life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing, and they can't take it from you, no matter what they do. Argument number two, verse 26. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of much more value than they? Here's the logic. Glorious, Christ-like, heavenly, infallible logic. Two premises and a conclusion. Premise number one. God rules worms. Berries and mosquitoes. So that every time one of them goes into the beak of a bird, it is a gift of Almighty God into the life of that bird. There is a view of providence here that is stunning. I mean, Jesus, come on. God feeds birds. Didn't you just set up some laws about 20 million years ago, cut them loose? fold your hands and watch this machine grind itself out in evolutionary ways? No, he didn't. He is intimately involved. That's Jesus' point. My father feeds birds. My father is into worms, berries, and mosquitoes. And they get fed because he says, Worm, rise after my reign. Berry, hang there. Cardinal, I saw Cardinal chirping his lungs out yesterday Go down there, grab that little berry. That's a God-given gift for you. That's premise number one. Premise number two, you're more valuable than birds. Conclusion, you'll have what you need. He is God, and you will have what you need. That's a good argument, if you believe him. You have to trust him and his view of God. If you have a different view of God... different view of your own relation to God, that'll all sound like gobbledygook. But if you trust him and his arguing, your peace will rise. Argument number three, verse 27. Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Now that's just a simple, downright, plain, practical, pragmatic. Anxiety does you no good. It doesn't help. Why do you do that? It's like saying, my car's broken, I've been laid off, and thirdly, I'm going to add anxiety on top of that. Well, Jesus is saying, why would you do that? That does not help lift this burden, and it doesn't lengthen your life at all. It doesn't do any good, so don't do that. So you should should preach to yourself, self Stop compounding your misery with anxiety. That's the way you should preach. And you should say, in the name of Jesus, in the authority of Jesus, I address you, stupid anxiety. Get out of my life. You are making me miserable. i got enough troubles that are objective. And out here, I don't need troubles in here. I think that's the point of that text. Argument number three. Here's argument number four. Verse 28 why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God, here's his great providence again. If God so clothes the grass of the field, little white puffballs in pa- clover patches. If, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven. Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? This is almost like the bird argument, but not quite. Not quite. The bird argument was, he feeds birds, and you're more valuable than birds. The argument here is, he clothes lilies and grass, and you last longer than they do. In other words as you attend to God's intimate involvement with creation and his care about beauty, and then you contemplate your relation to him as your father and how long this relationship is going to be, namely forever, the likelihood that he would care about you more than grass is pretty good. Really good. And those kind of arguments can hold sway in an anxiety, distraught mind. If you will take them, believe them, and apply them. Argument number five. Verse thirty-one. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, "What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear?" For the Gentile, for the Gentiles seek all these things. Paraphrased. Anxiety is worldly. Don't be worldly. The Gentiles, the people who don't know Christ, the people who don't know God, they're the ones who anxiously seek after things. Why would you want to copy them? That's worldly. Now, at this point, I hear, I just hear, something rising that maybe sounds like this. Piper, you're naive. You're really naive, you know you you don't have a clue about the monster I'm dealing with. You do not get it. What I get up with in the morning. What I go to bed with at night. You, you think telling me it's worldly is going to help me. To which I say, be careful. I didn't say it. Jesus said it. Be real careful that you do not elevate your pain and the monster in your life to the level where Jesus doesn't know what he's talking about and that his prescriptions and remedies and reasons are useless to you. Be careful, Bethlehem, that you do not become cynical and think that you can rise with your pain above your doctor and say, you don't know what you're talking about. I just say, be careful. Now, let me help you man. Could it be that what you're feeling right now is misplaced in this regard. I said at the beginning, there are eight of these arguments, not just one, because he knows how big the monster is. He knows how many heads grow on this monster of anxiety. He knows how I can come out of nowhere with all kinds of crazy associations in your life. And he's not just giving you one weapon to use. He's in this text, and there are many more, giving you eight Eight weapons to use. And I hear you hear one and say, it's worldly. It's supposed to help me. Thank you. It doesn't help me. I want to say to you, don't say that. Rather, take it and say, right now, Father. Right now, Jesus. I say it's worldly and expect that to have power to overcome this monster. I say, take it and put it in your bag with all the weapons. Put it in your bag. Because the day is going to come when what you think will be helpful won't be helpful. And you'll reach into your bag and the Holy Spirit, in ways you cannot even imagine this morning, is going to make that little sentence the sword that lops off that monster's head. Don't despise the Word of God. Even if you can't see its immediate relevance. Don't despise it. Put it in your bag and say, Lord, I don't know how to use that gun. I don't even know where the trigger is. But I'll fumble around with it and the Holy Spirit will get my finger onto it one of these days and I'll blow the head off that monster anxiety. That's just the way life is. We're, we're, we're very fallible, fragile, finite folks and we don't get it all, all the time. So he's giving you eight weapons. Don't blow any of them off. Argument number 6, verse 32, at the end of the verse. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Now, I hear three precious words. Father, heavenly, knows. Father means... I have a relationship as a child to an infinitely loving, caring, providing, guiding father. And if you had a bad father or no father that you can remember... Please don't bring that up and say, I can't compute with the biblical view of God as Father because I didn't have one or mine was a rat. Don't say that. The Bible is given and these texts are written to describe for you what your heavenly father is like. You're not shut up to learning about your heavenly father from your earthly father. I had a very good, not perfect, but very good earthly father. But you know what? The distance between my good earthly father and my heavenly father that I have learned about in scripture is 10 trillion miles. And the distance between my good earthly father and your Absent or cruel father is very small by comparison. Do not use your background as a way to silence the precious revelation of God to you. He wants to teach you what it is to have a father. The Bible is never dependent on human analogies that we experience. He wants to come and say, you had a bad father? I'll show you what a father is supposed to be. Like, I know all your needs and I will meet them. And the word heavenly, you put the word heavenly in front of it, it means powerful. All seeing, all knowing, all loving, all powerful. And then you put the word know. He knows what you need. I mean, I can just picture a, a little huddled group of people surrounded by a mob or a people who don't have any more food in China, like Hudson Taylor, whose rice just ran out. And he looks into the face of his wife and he says, God knows. And it's not an empty phrase. God knows. Meaning, my father knows. And he owns all the rice in the world, all the trucks in the world, all the boats in the world, all the mail systems in the world. He is God. My father knows. Argument number 7, verse 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Go ahead, give yourself with abandon to kingdom issues. Not accumulating more and more money to make sure you always have enough food and clothing and drink no. Give yourself to love. Give yourself to kingdom. Beware of opening that newspaper to the stock page every morning. Open it to the news and pray for the president. Open it to the metro section. Pray for the mayor and pray for the governor and pray for those who've just been, had their wife shot last night. Make life kingdom life. Not Where's my stock today? What an empty way to spend your morning bowing at the shrine of Wall Street. And you, if you're a financial counselor, you got a big challenge. Make your counsel kingdom counsel. Now, all these things will be added to you. Hmm. Hmm. Jesus did promise that some of us would be imprisoned. He did promise that some of us would be killed. He did promise through the Apostle Paul that there would be famine and nakedness that we would have to walk through. He promised through Paul, through the psalmist, we are being killed all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No! In all these things, we are in all these things. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Here's what I think Jesus means when he says... All these things will be added to you. I think he means all these things that you need to seek my kingdom will be added to you. You're in prison somewhere and they're not feeding you. And you say, God, please, I'm being torn up inside. Just a piece of bread. If You need that piece of bread to keep you from making shipwreck of your faith. You will have it. I say it with the absolute authority of Jesus Christ. He will keep his own. If you're without clothing and you say, Lord, it is so shameful. They're treating us in this camp with such shame. I don't think I can go out there again. I will die. I will lose my faith. The Lord will provide you exactly what you need. Don't take this verse. Oh, listen, I know that what I'm saying right now is not there in that verse. What I'm doing, and I'm trusting you to be with me here, is gathering from chapter 24 of Matthew and chapter 8 of Romans and all the other things Jesus said about life in his discipleship. And I'm saying, to make sense out of all these things will be added to you, I must take it to mean All these things that you need to obey me and glorify me will be added to you. He will never let you lack what would cause you to make shipwreck of your faith. Fix that. You know what I mean. Last argument, and we're done. Verse 34. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. That's a really sweet encouragement if you hear it against the right backdrop. Because what it says is, God has spread your troubles over your life in a proportion that will give to each day its amount that you, by grace, can handle. That's what it says. But the backdrop that you need to also hear are these sweet words from Lamentations 3. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new. Finish it. Why are they new every morning? Answer, because every day has enough trouble of its own. You've got to have new mercies for new troubles every day. Tomorrow's mercies are not for today's troubles. And tomorrow's troubles are not meant to be borne by today's mercies. When you wake up tomorrow morning, you're going to have some new anxiety challenges. And there will be new grace. It won't be here today. It will arrive tomorrow. Which is why you have to live by faith. Because you say, I'm spent today. I'm spent. If another thing goes wrong today, I'm done. I'm, it's just history. And God says, I know that. And I won't let more come into this day than I will give you grace to handle. Tomorrow, there will be more, but there will be more grace. And that's what frees you from anxiety about tomorrow. Let's close like this. Receive these gifts, Christian. Receive them, non-Christian, and become one. And what Jesus has done is not say, Okay, on the 9th of March, you were delivered once and for all from anxiety. That's not what I'm saying or he's saying. I'm saying we've put eight tools, eight weapons in your bag. Go from here and pull them out as needed and slay the dragon of anxiety every time it rears its head.